A reality we cannot escape as makers is that we are adding objects to the planet. And to do so we use materials, some of which might have an impact on the environment. How extensive this impact is, is often information that is hard to retrieve, which means we might not be aware and therefore not feel the urgency to change our ways. Today I'm excited to welcome an art historian who actively challenges the big questions that surround our field. Shining a light on the issues surrounding materials, unpicking our human desire for the wearing of jewellery and carefully tracing the stories of small objects. Saskia Vaness reports for online forums, platforms and magazines and therefore is the perfect guest to ponder all that is jewellery with me today. Welcome Saskia. Hello, thank you Sophie for inviting me. So Saskia, to start, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? What I do? Well, I live with my husband and three children uh, in Bussum, not too far from Amsterdam, and I'm an art historian uh, and I'm interested in jewelry. Uh, I'm a big enthusiast for contemporary or art jewelry, and I write about it, uh, for example, for two big international online forums. And what fascinates me is what things, uh, so objects, mean to people. Recently, I have explored the materials that jewelry is made of. As you can imagine, gold, for example, uh, that's a material with a thousand legends attached to it. But at the same time, this um, mythical material has a very dirty side to it. Um, it can only be extracted from uh, the mountain or the soil or the riverbed uh, in a harmful way. Gold comes with an ecological or a social impact. And uh, then the question is, what do jewelry people do with that awareness? Those articles have been really interesting, and I have a couple of questions about them later on. But maybe just to ask, as a trained art historian, you could have sort of focused your attention on a range of art disciplines, and but you said you became fascinated by jewelry and, and smaller objects. Where do you think that fascination has come from? Ah, yeah, that is relatively new. I think maybe five or ten years at the most. Uh, because to be honest, Sophie, I was not trained in jewelry history or applied art, or but it was in architecture and or the history of architecture and town planning. Uh, but in my liberal liberal arts faculty, there was this one amazing history of architecture professor. So there I went, and everyone wanted to be in his classes. But in hindsight, frankly, I should have uh, stayed with. Uh, fine arts or applied arts or archaeology or something. But then, uh, so I meandered around a bit and then I found, I, I sort of fell in love with fiber art, with textiles. And uh, that's where I came across uh, jewelry made from textile. And then there was this whole new world opening up to me that I had no idea. And for me, um, as an omnivore, it was... It had a big advantage that this jewelry that I found out about didn't make me choose because everything was there. All the materials, glass, gemstones, metals, ceramics, uh, wood, fibers, uh, recycled stuff, and also the techniques that it could be any material, any technique. 
now I, I I saw it and I knew that I would be there for a while because it is so rich this world it's small but everything is there and what was also new for me was that connection to the body because that's an exciting aspect of jewelry that yeah it's something that you wear on the body yeah come to think of it maybe that connection to architecture is still there that I sometimes I keep my eyes peeled for jewelry that has something to do with architecture and there's not a lot of that but personally I I see parallels and there's for example this one wonderful brooch in the collection of the foundation in the Netherlands that is called the Françoise van den Bos Foundation uh, it's a, a, a brooch by a Dutch artist Erik Kuiper and you can clearly see that he is a builder too and um to me there are these parallels that um when I was in university, we were uh, taught about the uh, a new building or a new neighborhood or area that could react to the traces of human occupancy that were there or not, or decide not to react to that, to that of course. And uh, another aspect that I liked was the human scale, that there are some squares that are dead or deserted, but then there is the Campo Grande in Siena, and how come that that has a comfortable feeling and architecture has to do with movement, for example, like you walk through a city or you drive and you see it evolve around you. Like in the, you drive your car uh, down the strip in LA, for example, and all these things, architecture and jewelry have the parallels. It's a, it's a human made thing. Um, there's the body and there's that movement. So then, there's just doesn't really matter what scale it is it's the same kind of thinking I think that actually totally makes sense to me and yeah all of those are important to a jeweler when they're designing or making I wanted to to pick up on something that you mentioned in terms of that as soon as you started looking a sort of whole world opened up and I wanted to ask do you think that contemporary jewelry is still very much shielded away and what do you think maybe could be done to make it more accessible to the general public it, it, it is still possible to make room to to make it more accessible or discoverable if that's a word but on the other hand it's also something it is something for connoisseurs it's not for everyone maybe like some types of fashion uh, so it would be a crazy goal or ideal to have everyone walk around with our jewelry but if for example uh, now there is still a group of people that has not had the opportunity to know about it and would have loved it and would have said oh this is something i can express myself with then that would be a terrible waste and then i would say yes please uh, let's all try and, and get these people on the on the wagon too what what pulled you in so was there a specific piece that suddenly attracted your attention or how did that then happen that you suddenly discovered this field because i've been always attracted to small things that don't re reveal themselves right away that are not screaming in your face that jewelry that once i see that you are wearing this ring that has a very is a very compacted thing but full of meaning then i it's so intriguing for me i mean i'm 
I'm sure other people will will be very bored by it, but um, maybe the small scale um, the possibility that you can imagine touching it and holding it that is also important for me. Even if you can't physically hold it, you have a an imagination or a memory of previous experiences that make you imagine that feeling. And the fact that it is worn on the body is is very exciting and even dangerous. I mean, it's it's so persistent and it's it's so present if you wear something uh and you talk to me then you're yeah that's a sign i have to you come you're communicating something and i have to do something with it and you feel it too and it's not like uh i see uh, a stationary painting and i i don't like the message and i walk away from it it's um there's much more at stake because it's in the public space and it's between us and it's moving i think that extra layer of wearing is is fascinating yeah i love what you just said sort of the alignment of a person with a piece of jewelry you can't you know if it's your friend and you don't necessarily enjoy the piece well you can't just defriend your friend or walk away <laughs> from your friend <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you mentioned you are interested in the meaning that people attach to jewelry and as you've just described so people navigating towards specific pieces of jewelry could you perhaps expand a little bit on what you yourself have sort of investigated and discovered to date around this theme? It's almost like you think of a philosophical question if you talk about meaning, because that's the field of philosophy, meaning, meaning, meaning. But it, it makes us human. We see meaning in things. We, we see a, a horizon or a friendship or a flower on a rock face or anything, and we we immediately uh, attach meaning to it. But then with jewelry, apparently there are small things that we upload with meaning and we also want to keep them close to us. So that's, I think, I'm not saying I understand how, the, how this came about, but it has been around for such a long time that there must be something in it that, because, yeah, to answer your question, that's where the magic lies for me, the, um, those archaeological finds, so prehistoric pierced shell or um, a bird's claw or a small stone with, with little traces of wear, they must have been worn as ornaments, but, but why? Maybe they wore this of evil or they channeled the powers of the thing it came from, like maybe with that eagle, uh, that talon of the eagle, and, or they were meant to attract a suitable partner, who knows? But we can't ask these Neanderthals anymore. But I think it's safe to say that it didn't feed them, it didn't house them, and it didn't keep them warm. And even today, we don't need jewelry, but we have it. <laughs> so I think it's very fascinating that it is such a, a constant and it's so persistent. But um, the meaning uh, in those pieces yeah, who, there will be uh, lots of guessing uh, what has driven them to wear these things. Yeah, that's hard to believe, isn't it? So most recently, you sort of mentioned you turned your attention to histories behind jewelry materials and sort of questions about materials raised in, in what we call the Anthropocene with, you know, materialities of jewelry shift in this digital age. And, and then the stresses on the environment, as we are all very much aware, demanding this increased attention from us all. What do you 
think is necessary for jewelers to engage with? What made you want to explore this area? And, and where has the subject taken you so far? I didn't look at it as an opposition between a digital world and then uh, the material to anchor you or something. But uh, the background was more the concerns about what the, uh, what we are doing to the world in this era called the Anthropocene. It, it started uh, for me two years ago. There, I was seized by many initiatives uh, on material research, not in jewelry, but in design, for example. And there was an excellent exhibition, a cooperation between the Cube Museum in the Netherlands and the Cooper Hewitt in New York called Nature Collaborations in Design. And many of the projects that were shown there were also presented at the Biennale in Milano. And there the, the theme was Broken Nature, a bit more pessimist as a title. Uh, what they presented, that, that was alternatives, like, for example, linen, uh, so you could avoid cotton that takes so much water to grow and to process, or fruit leather that was made from the leaves of pineapples that otherwise would be thrown away, or um, shapes that grew themselves out of mushrooms, or bricks made of coffee grinds, uh, lots and lots of seaweed and algae. And uh, I had the feeling that all this activity and that whole debate that was in the in the area our neighboring area of fashion and design, but uh, maybe a little bit less loud in contemporary jewelry. So then that triggered me to uh, take a closer look at people who did work with those notions. And uh, I didn't know too much at the time. Like many jewelry lovers, I knew some, of course, about gold and pearls and the sometimes cruel ways that they are sourced. But um, I don't want to do a shock report, but so many stories of child labor and modern slavery and coercion and criminal networks and smuggling, but also the ecological dilemmas like uh, mine pits that scare the landscape and toxic substances ending up in the environment. But then still, we have to use materials, not only for jewelry, but we, we use objects and how can we limit the damage? So that was how I became interested. And then I found out some about some alternatives, um, like uh, people, jewelry people decided to use materials that were discarded so that were already not part of the economical system anymore. And other people uh, used um, reconstructed stone or reconstructed pearls or coral. It's uh, like the components are the dust of the original material, the real thing and some binding agent. But then there were also, that this is something you know all about, but the man-made stones that are grown in a lab that have, uh, as you know, very interesting implications for the design also. Um, but all these materials that are alternatives and make you stay away from mining virgin materials, they, unfortunately, I found out, also have their ecological downside. So then... You can also wonder how uh, sustainable is that? And maybe think back of that gold again, which is that I realized too, like gold and uh, aluminium, they are not so pleasant to extract. But then once you have them, they are wonderful materials because you can melt them, use them again, and they never lose their qualities. So 
is that maybe a direction to uh, invest more in in uh, using what's going around already uh, electronic waste or the things they find on in the bottom ash of incinerators or dental gold or your and my grandmother's old gold also possible along the way i found out that uh, there are so many facets to this sustainability question so i think if you would ask me where it has taken me i think i'm at the point where i think that mining is really a bad idea that i would be very suspicious of and and also materials coming from animals is uh, good to be suspicious uh, but even if you avoid those then you're not necessarily green and uh, you know as soon as you wake up you make an impact you me the the maker the wearer the supply and demand um, so i think the only thing that we can do is to inform ourselves and then um, make a choice and go ahead <laughs> recently i had a sort of exercise myself where we were all asked to sort of document all of the materials that it had taken to produce a certain piece of jewelry and it was just a silver piece and you know you start to think okay well it was silver but then all oh, these tools i've used that are steel they were made in germany and then actually you know i've i put it in an acid bath mm. so that i could remove the oxides from soldering and then i've actually um had some parts cast which you know used investment yeah. casting powder which i had no idea what it was fully you know, i knew it was plaster but there are other components in there and it was as if i've opened up pandora's box you know more and more and more um popped out and I wanted to ask, do you think it is important all jewelers start asking these questions and maybe engage with these discussions? And yeah, in what ways do you think this is happening now? And how could you see this engagement be increased? Well, I think that in traditional jewelry, like commercial jewelry, maybe, or brands, or how do you call it, uh, there is a lot going on already. And I think the academies for contemporary jurors they will have to follow suit it has to be part of the curriculum and it is in in many schools i don't want to say anything bad about those schools that, that do pay attention to this to this topic so yes there should be attention for it and there will be because there is no way of escaping this question there well if you think of a piece of jewelry as uh, a concept and a technique and a material and a form then that aspect of the material was not very much spotlighted but now it it is much more because of this awareness gaining strength um you can't just use a piece of coral anymore and say yeah it's because i like the ocean so much or i like the color red or no there there is now another connotation that is be, being heard it was there but now it gets its voice that uh, it's connected to ocean warming and to protected species and whatever not. So that is also a voice in the many layers of meaning of your piece. So I think that there's really no way of escaping this topic. Also, on the other hand, it should not freeze you from, uh, you know, it should not prevent you from acting. We all have to, the flow, there has to be a flow or we have to, to stay in motion. Um, and uh, I think I'm also quite hopeful because there is an, a big increase in awareness and um, 
for example, when I was young, I felt very woke, and this word didn't exist, but I felt like that when I was um, telling my grandmother off for wearing a fur coat. <laughs> but at the same time, I had no idea about ivory. I thought gold was great, but there was uh, a big mercury problem then already too, and uh, blood diamonds. Uh, I, I had no idea, but now the the generation that is leaving Arctic cannabis now, I think they have a sort of an uh, inborn eco instinct. I would call it. I think we can be hopeful. Yeah, I love that an inborn eco instinct. There is one book, Donna Haraway, "Staying with the Trouble" is the book. She, she because you started talking about corals and she talks about artists who who have engaged people in in knitting coral reefs and it, it became super popular across the whole world and she talks about sort of uh, entanglement without physical touch because that is really quite interesting could we make references to gold without necessarily using gold and i don't know there might be something there it, that's how it works if you find an alternative to say what you want to say, the exact same message, I would say. Yeah. And involve people in the in the discovery as well. That's quite nice in a way as well. My next question is around the coronavirus pandemic. So obviously it, this has disrupted our world. And I wanted to ask if you feel this has also changed any of the things that you know our attention to other problems or in general other things in the field and what are your thoughts on how this might influence the future of the jewelry field i miss the feeling of picking up a piece of jewelry or or at least walking around it or being close to the to the piece physically um, and I hope that will return. But I hate to say it, but for me personally, there was a big upside. The investment in, um, uh, we have all witnessed investment in techniques to share um, what you're doing over the internet, like Zooms and podcasts and um, studio tours. Yeah, that has been a big uh, COVID bonus, as they say, for me. It also made me laugh uh, that my jewelry friend here in the Netherlands, Esther Dornbus, she said, ah, oh, she had spent the weekend uh, in the World Jewelry Museum in Seoul. <laughs> and she said, oh, she loved the museum and there was so much to see and the people were so nice. And this was all from her armchair in Amsterdam. And uh, I could completely understand because also I thought, would I ever have had the chance to visit well, for example, uh, the gallery Fingers in New Zealand, if it wasn't for that Archery Forum uh, live event uh, via Zoom. So those things make me very grateful. But I realize at the same time they're, they are not viable as a business model. They, these Zooms, they, they emerged and uh, there were no real encounters anymore and people wanted to market their things. So uh, in this new situation... Uh, a lot of digital content was given away for free. And I do hope that the galleries and the artists had some payoff from that, that, you know, for their marketing investment, let's say. But there were also more informative Zooms that uh, were also free. And I think we, we can easily spend a couple of euros or dollars or reals or whatever 
to make it uh, continue after this horrible situation is over because now uh, the artists and organizations cannot do this for free forever. When we talk about sort of the events and all the things that were happening online, I, I totally agree they were amazing and there was plenty and and it, and it's wonderful to, to hope that some of these can continue. You or you write for a, for a platform called Klimto too, and there are other institutions you've referenced. Do you think they could play a role in sustaining this? I'm usually not that adventurous in um, setting up new structures because if you take Art Jury Forum, for example, they had a, a large audience already and then they started their wonderful series of these live talks and uh, it immediately caught on. So I think, yeah, leave that with the people who know a lot already about uh, getting in touch with people. Yeah, it's a good question. Because I, for example, sometimes miss uh, more platforms, more magazines, and then I think there is more room for that. Uh, maybe a younger feel to it also. And the only organization that I could think of now is Current Obsession. This is a platform based in the Netherlands, but working internationally. And they have a very good eye for all things fresh. That it's uh, maybe... Yeah, something that they could take under their wings or and they, they do that already because they bring together people on a physical and digital scale all the time. Evidenced by the many articles you know you've written you are a prolific writer and and in a way an educator because you try to engage the audience and, and share something you've seen and, and engage them in what you've discovered. So what writing to date are you sort of most proud of? And are you working on anything new that you're happy to share? Ooh, but I, did I hear you mention educator? Because I don't think of myself as an educator. Uh, although maybe uh, I do because I hope that there will be some discussion from what I write. It's true. And, uh, and that um, article or thing that I'm most proud of, I once started by addressing the use of animal materials in jewelry and uh, this was about jewelry that was made of uh, wings or uh, beetle wings and ivory and bone and feathers and complete dead birds even taxidermy um, and i felt there were questions that you could ask but then it also seemed at the time to me that in contemporary jewelry um, it was sort of the custom not to ruffle any feathers and uh, swallow your curiosity and just if you had questions then just refrain from it and say hmm, interesting fascinating so but then i wrote the article and in hindsight that was not very activist or or overly brave but for me that was the first time that that i started to ask questions and still i don't want to point my finger and i don't want to forbid any materials uh, on the contrary i think all materials should always be a possibility, but there is no solution or ethical standard. But maybe if we talk about it a little bit more, then we can approach that ethical, better ethical standard. And what was, oh yeah, and the new articles, yeah, there are many bits and pieces. And I was, that was really nice. I was in touch with a, a, a jewelry maker from Saudi Arabia, um, Abir Baghdadi. And She's a very strong and wise woman, full of energy. And uh, she's actually 
there at the beginning of a sort of an emerging contemporary jewelry movement. So I thought it was really exciting to talk to her and hopefully see what's uh, going on there in the future. Oh, yeah, there's another uh, a Dutch maker, Françoise van der Bos, who died very young. And she was avant-garde in the um, 70s. And I had the opportunity to talk to some of her contemporaries who are still um, around, luckily, and uh, just to, you know, to record what they have uh, in terms of memories of that time. And um, I spoke to a wonderful lady that she owned one of the three original black and white bracelets that Françoise van der Bos had made. Uh, and she bought the first one of those three, first one in 1970. That, that bracelet had always been her favorite and it was now dented in some places. But what I liked very much was that during our talk, uh, I also listened to the jingling of that aluminium bracelet, the original, that iconic bracelet. So uh, that was a moment when I really I loved what I do. But I think the main team will, I will be uh, focusing on materials for, I have a lot of uh, ideas still to explore and to work out. Uh, for example, I'm a big fan of the idea that a material is not as inert as we think. It may be uh, more alive or, or it has more stories to it than you think and it can be even restless or vibrant and it can influence you and shape you back. So that also has to do with the idea that we are part of um, a network. So if you are uh, working uh, on that stone on your bench, setting it in your ring, da -da, then um, it's not just you in the room. There, there is someone who faceted that stone. Uh, before that, there was someone who mined it. And then if you are talking about being thankful to all these uh, co-authors, I would say, then you can also think of the mountain and the ore that provided that stone for you. So th that it's, it's about a, a, a mutual dependency uh, with organic and non-organic and human and non-human actors. Uh, but it also has some interesting implications uh, for the notion of authorship. Because if you are not the only one working on that piece, would you sign it with your name? And I think we're sort of seeing the end of the era of the superstar jewelry maker signing his piece with his name, like there's no before and no after. I'm saying he, but it could be a she too, but sometimes it was a he. I'm thinking of he's, I think. And the authorship could maybe become uh, something that you share with a group. So uh, a group of participants who collaborate and they all contribute, contribute to the end product, but they don't sign with their individual name. They sign with the name of the collective. I'm, I'm actually not that far in my research. I would be very interested to get in touch with um, collectives that work like this with jury because I only know these things in the fine art, but um, who knows? And who knows we're moving into an era of less ego. <laughs> if you have a caster who casts, and like you say, a setter who sets, and an engraver who engraves, and a faceter who facets your stone, and you're the designer, why is, any of their contribution less valuable than yours and, and who decides. And then it can also continue after that because then 
there is me, the wearer, and then I take it from there. But I'm also maybe part of that uh, same activity that influences back and forth. There is a really nice YouTube lecture of Jane Bennett talking about Vibrant Matter, the book that she wrote. And she looked at hoarders and sort of her hypothesis was that hoarders just had a better sense for the pool of materials. That idea that matter has sort of a pull, hoarders can't get rid of their materials, like they keep everything, everything. Get... So she's sort of saying that they they sort of have this, this extra sense and that we all in a way could learn something from their approach to materials. There was a nice talk by a Dutch philosopher and he discovered the whole gamut from um, the Wunderkammer and then uh, um, collections that became public, like museums. And then um, why do people do that? Do they want to show off their status or do they have like these hoarders, a certain heightened sensitivity with those objects? Or that was yeah, objects or materials, maybe we can group them together. But I have... I have heard someone speak about hoarders and jewelry. Yeah, we must be those crazy people too that we we, we like this stuff. <laughs> oh, I'm very much looking forward to reading what you'll write. Well, but I don't know where all these things will end up because I've I've also uh, had wonderful ideas that I pitched uh, turned down, and then you know, so it's always a, a bit of a lucky shot what ends up on the pages of a website so we'll see do you take them to other places then if they get turned down or uh well in uh, the case of art jury format you know how this works there's the, are, are these submission rounds and then uh i sometimes very sad and sometimes very happy and uh for cleaned o2 uh that material series was oh i was so happy that was a a commission so uh, leo caballero he asked me and then i have uh some ideas that I don't know where they will end up. Or it's it's not released with any structure or plan. Authorships, materials, sustainability. These are the topics of discussion contemporary jewellery makers should be engaging in. There is no one more interested in stimulating discussion through her words than my guest today. And I would like to thank you, Saskia, for your time, your insights and all you have already researched for us. We are very lucky that we can join you in your discoveries and cannot wait to read what you will share with us next. Thank you so much, Saskia. Thank you, Sophie, for having me and asking me all these questions that uh, were sometimes quite hard, but I really loved our conversation. Thank you. Next month, I will be joined by another guest, so watch this space to find out who it is. But for now, this was Sophie Boons for the BAJ podcast episode titled Thinking Matter with Seskia Vaness. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.